Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 29? The scripture on, what today's, on which today's teaching is based is Genesis chapter 29, a continuation of the life of Jacob. It's a snapshot for us because we haven't really gone into the life of Jacob yet. This is an amazing passage. I'm going to read from verses 15 to 35. It's also printed in your bulletin. Just read along with me uh, in private, and uh, we'll go into the preaching of the word. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they, only, they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give our younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as, as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. And this is God's word. It's a confusing passage, disturbing in some ways. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about what drives Metro, Metro Presbyterian Church. We've been talking about the values that shape our ministry. Ever since 2008, when this church plant was formed, it came with certain values. We forged this church and this partnership, this community, with certain values. And the first, the most important of our values, is that we are a gospel-centered church. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? And it's an opportunity right now for me then to share passages about the gospel that have influenced and shaped uh, the conception of Metro Presbyterian Church. Today we're going to look at Genesis 29. It's a passage about love and marriage. It's a passage about love and marriage, but it's not like what you think. The scriptures, it presents to us a deeper meaning of love and marriage. You know, today we associate love and marriage with, you know, endless kissing, passion, uh, heavy breathing, uh, but the Bible is very realistic. 
The Bible is very realistic when it comes to discussing the issue of love and marriage. And, uh, you know, on one hand, it says, it rec- the Bible recognizes that uh, there are tremendous difficulties with singlehood, tremendous difficulties with being single. But on the other hand, it also recognizes equally, equal dif- uh, difficulties with having to share your life forever with another person. This passage teaches us about the power that a need for love has over our lives. We see this through the lives of Jacob, and we see it through the life of, of Leah. And it provides us two incredible perspectives about love. Two incredible perspectives about God's love for us. So two points. Fortunately, the points are broken up in multiple little points, but we have two simple points. Bad news, good news. The bad news, a radical view of sin, our sin, and the good news, a radical view of God's grace in our lives. First, the bad news. Radical view of sin. I'm going to give you a little summary. Jacob comes from a family. I'm going to try to shorten this sermon because of, uh, I know that we started a little bit later. Um, I'm going to deviate from what I originally planned to preach a little bit. Jacob came from a family that was chosen by God to be ultimately the redeeming family for the rest of history. You know, man had sinned ever since the garden. People had sinned. Adam had sinned, and they were driven out of the garden, driven out of uh, perfection. But God had chosen through one family line the redemption of all mankind, and he chose Jacob's family. It was through Jacob's grandfamily, grandparents, that redemption would flow through. We call this the seed of salvation. Jacob is the younger son of two kids in the family, you know, Isaac being the father. Jacob's older brother Esau, by right, had the blessing of this redemptive seed that would pass through him. But Jacob, he wasn't going to stand for that. He was conniving. His name actually means deceiver, liar, cheater. So what does he do? He actually contrives a way to steal the birthright and the blessing from his older brother. And now from that point on, he's running. He's on the run. Esau is upset. He's angry. He actually wants to kill his brother. And he's chasing after his younger brother. And the younger has stolen the blessing of the seed of redemption. The chosen family, that seed would pass through him. And he steals it and he runs. And he's running. And from that point on, he's subjected to a life of suffering. He's constantly on the run. And yet, he doesn't give up his name. He's constantly stealing. He's constantly deceiving people that he encounters. And at one point, there is no home for Jacob. He's actually alone. And you can imagine at this stage, under the roof of his uncle Laban, wondering whether or not, because of all of his sinfulness, all of his deception, he's wondering, does God really love me? I mean, I know that I stole the blessing, but does that mean that I'm really blessed? You know, Isaac, when he actually stole the blessing from his brother, Isaac the father, he could have easily said, no, no, this was done wrong. I'm going to transfer the blessing back to my eldest son, But Isaac doesn't do that. In his trembling, Isaac acknowledges what has happened. And he actually says, Jacob will be blessed. And based on that truth, Jacob on the run is looking for blessing. He's looking for the blessing. All the time wondering, is God in my life? I'm suffering. I'm running. I'm lying. I'm cheating. And yet, he has to lie, he has to cheat because he's got nothing. Is the blessing really for me? Is God really present in my life? 
It's an incredibly a- applicable, when you talk about application, it's an incredibly applicable passage because we always wonder. At any point in time, it's easy to not wonder whether or not God is present in our blessing. But when we're suffering, and most of life is suffering, come on, most of life is suffering, we wonder, is God in our lives? Is God really present here? One of the first things that strike you about this text is that he finally gets to Laban's place and he falls in love with Laban's daughter. Laban had two daughters. We're going to go into this. He falls in love with Rachel. It was easy to fall in love with Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. Rachel was lovely in form. It basically meant that she's pretty and she had a wonderful figure. What's there not to love outwardly? So Jacob immediately falls in love with her. And this now begins the cycle that we're about to see and the lessons that we're going to learn. This passage warns us that sin is a power. So there's three things, three very quick things about sin that I want to share with us because it's radical. It's, we don't really think about this with respect to our sin. One of the first things that we see is that Jacob is working. He offers to work seven years for Rachel. He says, you know, I'm, I'm willing to work. And now Laban is a crafty businessman. He's very shrewd. He's family, but he figures, I'm going to use the fact that, I'm, that, that Jacob is family with the fact that I need money. He's, very, he's a wealthy businessman, and he's trying to figure out a way to increase his wealth. And at the same time, he's thinking, you know, I have two daughters. The elder one is not very attractive, but I have to marry both of them off. How do I do this? And like any economist, he's going to now efficiently take all three desires and funnel them through Jacob. What does he do? He makes a deal with Jacob. I want you to work seven years, and you'll get my daughter. And it says here, it's so romantic. Jacob worked seven years, but they seemed only like a few days. But that's not what's really going on. Jacob approaches Laban and says, give her to me. The the actual Hebrew phrase there is not very romantic. In fact, it's translated, I want to lie with her. Give her to me. You see the passion. You see the desire in Jacob. It's much more than love. It's, much more, it's something that goes beyond love. Jacob's being driven by something else, and he's working, and he's working. Seven years he works. And then there's a feast. Laban hold, he finally calls the feast together. In the feast, there's a lot of drinking. And Jacob now, finally, at the end of this time, goes to bed on his wedding night. And Laban does a little bit of a switcheroo. Instead of Rachel, he gives her Laban, uh, Leah. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and realizes that he had slept with the wrong sister. This is a terrible story, isn't it? This is a horrible story. And, uh, you know, you know um, why is Jacob willing? You know, Jacob is, is tormented by this. He goes to Laban and says, why have you done this to me? I asked for Rachel. It was clear in our contract. You gave me Leah. And Laban says, well, it's a custom you don't marry the younger daughter off without the elder daughter. So I'm not going to go against my contract. You can have Rachel just work for me another seven years. And Jacob consents. He works for another seven years and finally gets to marry Rachel. That's the first half of this text. It's an incredibly d- disturbing passage. And <clears throat> what, what do we see here? Why is Jacob willing to work? For the first time in Jacob's life, literally for the first time, because from the moment he was born, he was born as twins with his brother. Esau was born first, Jacob was born second, but Jacob was born clutching the heel of his brother, which is why he was given the name deceiver, one who always comes from behind. He deceives you. 
And so from the moment he was born, he was a deceiver, he was a cheater, he was a liar. This is the first time that he's earned something honestly. Rachel, getting Rachel meant more than just having a wife, somebody he could pass on at his heir and his inheritance. Having Rachel was, was the first time in his life that he had integrity. He worked for Rachel, and he worked honestly for Rachel. And in return, what did he get? He got tricked. He got coerced. He got uh, manipulated. He was deceived. The first time in his life that Laban is saying, uh, Jacob is saying, I've done th- I want to do this one right. I cheated my way into every other blessing. This one, Rachel, I want to earn honestly. And after all those years, he gets Leah. The first part about this, the first lesson about sin, is that you don't commit sin. Sin commits you. Sin is not just some sort of act that you commit. A lot of us see sin as an event. It's something that happened. It's an error in judgment. Sin is not an error in judgment. Sin is not just something that happens to you. Sin is not just something that you do. Sin, our sin, is something that's driven by something that's deep within. You have sin. And the thing is, it's not so much that you do sin. Sin controls you. Sin causes you to do things. Sin motivates you. Sin coerces you. Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, his most famous book, a seminal piece of literature called The Denial of Death. Pulitzer Prize winning book. In it, he's basically talking about um, our pursuits. Why, do we, why are we so driven to do the things that we do? And mainly, his, 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 he's a psychoanalyst in some ways, and what he does is he says, well, in our psyche, in our psychology, we know that from the moment we're born that we're going to die someday. And all the rest of our lives, we're trying to cope with the fact that we're going to die. And he basically lists through every chapter the things that we do to cope with the coming death that will be upon us 50, 60, 70 days or years from now. And he says one of the things that we do is we search for love, relationships. It's, it's our way of coping with the fact that we are insignificant. We're here today, gone tomorrow. And it's actually printed in your bulletins. Uh, Ernest Becker, he writes, the self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. Nothing less. Ernest Becker is pretty much saying the same thing here that's, that's written in Scripture. That you don't commit sin, sin commits you. You don't just do sin, sin actually does you in. Sin actually takes you, causes you, takes you onto a whole different path, a whole different road. You don't just commit one sin. You, you know, think about it. If you commit one lie, eventually it becomes easier to commit another lie. And then another lie. Pretty soon you realize you're, you've lived a life of lies. C.S. Lewis says eventually you become nothing but a lie. You become nothing is left but a lie itself. But the lie itself. Sin commits you. The second thing we learn here, the second lesson, is that in sin committing you, it commits you to a life of slavery, a life of sin, a life of sinful thoughts and deeds and motives and actions. What happens as a result is in the morning, there will always be Leah. Jacob, wanting to live an honest life for the first time in his life, goes to sleep after having been running from God for years and years and years. He finally comes to this place where he says, now I've arrived. I have Rachel. 
Instead of putting his love into the faithfulness of God, he puts it into a love partner. And it's pretty much a culmination of his pursuit of a blessing all of his life. He says, now I've arrived. Now I've come. I've, I've reached my, my, the peak of my potential. Now I see my options opening up. And he goes to bed in the morning. He wakes up. It was Leah. The scripture is telling us that all of us, every one of us, if we put anything ahead of God himself, if we put our identity in our career, that's what you're going to use to define yourself. If you're going to put your identity in a love partner, that's what you're going to use to identify yourself. If you're going to put your identity in your children, that's going to be the thing that's going to define me. If you put your identity in your success, your wealth, these are the things that are going to define me in the morning that will always be Leah. You will always be disappointed. It will always look good on one end, but as you proceed and as you persist in the morning, you will always experience what we call cosmic disappointment. It's a disappointment that reaches to the inner part of your soul because your soul was hooked onto this and the bridge has fallen down. It's like driving a two-ton truck over a one-ton bridge. It's not going to hold up and you crash. Just when you think you're over the bridge, boom, the bottom collapses. That's what scripture says. Anything that we place above God the Father himself will always fall short. It's meant to fall short. They're meant to be a picture, just an image of, that, that, that points to the ultimate God himself, the only one who can satisfy us. So on one hand, you don't commit sin. Sin commits you. Number two, that sin will lead you always in the morning. There will always be Leah. You will always experience cosmic disappointment. Well, the third thing that we experience is that cosmic disappointment leads us to see all the things that were hooked in. Look at Leah. Poor Leah. Leah. She's like the innocent bystander that got dragged into this entire mess. It's bad enough. It says here that Leah had weak eyes. Rachel was lovely in form, beautiful and lovely in form. Uh, you know, what we're saying here, it's, it's not, the, the text is not saying, it's particularly if you look at the language, that Leah had bad vision, but Rachel had great vision. It's, that's not what the text says. It says, Rachel, uh, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely in form. What they're saying here is that there was something wrong with Leah's eyes that disfigured her. Maybe she was cross-eyed. Maybe there was something about her eyes that basically rendered her completely worthless physically. And so she was always overlooked, always overlooked by her father, always overlooked by now Jacob. It says here in the text, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Two wives, incredibly broken family. You know, one of the things, just on a side note, we don't look, uh, you know, you don't, the last thing you want to do when you look at scripture is to look for role models. We think that the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, you hear these great names like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. But the thing is, these men were not role models. They were sinful. Sinful to the core, driven by desires, driven by wealth, driven by career, driven for success, driven for sex and conquest. And Jacob is no different. I mean, he's a patriarch, but look at here. I mean, he is not a role model. He is not there to serve as a role model for us. He is a picture of our brokenness. Jacob just loved Rachel more than Leah. It was natural to do that. Rachel was more beautiful. But God saw Leah. And, and opened up her womb, whereas Rachel was barren. So Leah starts to give heirs, starts to give birth to sons. The first son, what does she say? The Lord has seen me, has seen my misery. 
The Greek word for Reuben is I am seen. I am seen. Now my husband will love me. The second, but clearly he did not. So what did she do? Another cycle. It's an endless cycle. She gives birth to a second son, Simeon. Now I will be heard. But she is not. The Lord hears her. And so she gives birth to a third son. Now Jacob, my husband, will love me. Now he will be attached to me. But he's not. And so she has a fourth son. Every generation, cycle after cycle, you see the perpetuating aspect of Leah's sin. It's not wrong to want to get married. It's not wrong to to have a husband or to have a wife. It's not wrong to have many children. It's not wrong to, to want wealth or to even have wealth. But if you make those things, which are merely, you know, things that are, are blessings in life, if you make them an end, the ultimate thing in your life, what results? Cosmic disappointment. An exposure of the things that are hooking you. Leia, incredible disappointment in life. Four times over. What does it expose? Her deep need to be loved. All her life she's been overlooked. She just wants to be loved. She just wants to be known. The names that she's giving her children are a reflection of her heart's crying out, I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I just want someone to be attached to me. Four sons have gone by. Jacob, wanting to to figure out the blessing. Does God really know me? Does God really hear me? Does God really see me? He must. I have Rachel. And then in the morning, there is Leah. Ultimate disappointment because we're, Scripture is showing us how we're hooking ourselves into the wrong thing. If you're hooking your life into just being popular, having approval of other people, having the love of your spouse, or having perfect children, it's going to turn you into a cynical, bitter person. Why? Because you will always be disappointed. That's what Scripture is saying. Life is filled with disappointments. There are four ways we deal with disappointments in life. One, I'm just going to run through these very quickly. I was going to elaborate, but I'll go through these very quickly. One, you blame the other person. Jacob. What is this that you have done to me, Laban? You blame Laban. Or you look at Leah. Who are you? How did you end up here? What do you do? You replace the Leahs in our lives, and we go for the Rachels. You replace the jobs. You replace careers. You switch schools. You replace boyfriends and girlfriends. You replace husbands. You look at your children, and you withdraw for them. That's what we do. We blame other people. The second thing we do is we blame ourselves. This is all my fault. Why did I get drunk that night? You know, Jacob kicking himself. This was my party. I should have just stayed sane. I should have just stayed sober. And you start to go through this cycle of self-pity and self-hatred and self-punishment. Filled with regret. Why didn't I just do that thing? If I'd just done this, then I wouldn't be in this situation. The third thing we do is we look to heaven. And we say, I blame God and I blame the world. We understand the brokenness of the world, so we blame the world. And we say, I hate the world. And what do you do is you end up, you, you end up withdrawing from the world and withdrawing from God as Father. And you look at the Father's faithfulness and His love, and that's not what you see. What you see is uh, a, a, somebody that owes you because you've tried to live a good life. So what do you do? Like Joseph Stalin, who apparently wanted to enter into seminary before he turned around and entered into politics. On his last day, before he died, he raised his fist to the air as his final act of indignation to God. That's what we do. C.S. Lewis says, all those other means 
will make you bitter and cynical. Fill your life with regret and self-hatred. But there's a fourth way. You look at your disappointments in life. You look at your hurts and your pains and your struggles and you realize that this world, the best that it has to offer, will never satisfy me because I must be meant for something else. C.S. Lewis said, you know, a lot of times when we're thirsty, we thirst because there's such a thing as water. We eat, we're hungry because there's such a thing as food. We love because there's such a thing as relationship, a spouse. But every once in a while, you come across a hunger that cannot be uh, quenched, a thirst that cannot be quenched, a hunger that cannot be satisfied. You go through love partner after love partner and you realize you will not be fulfilled. It's because you were meant for something else. And if you come to that, all the other methods and means, it'll make you bitter. It'll make you struggle. It'll make you hate yourself and hate other people. But if you come to that fourth conclusion, that I am meant for something else, and that other thing, otherworldly, is the only thing that can satisfy me, that may make you a Christian. That may make you come to faith. Those are the three things that we learned about sin. I'm going to go very quickly to the three things, three very quick lessons about God's grace, radical view of God's grace. This is the good news because we've got to end with good news, right? First, God works through uh, weak people. God works in weak people. God works through the layers of the world to redeem people. Number one, God works through weak people. Look at, ja- look at Jacob. Jacob is very weak, not a role model at all. But what do you see through this process? In his pride, he steals the birthright. In his pride, he steals the blessing. And he is quick, and he is sharp, and he is on the go and on the run. And you can't catch Jacob, but here he's caught. God's humbling Jacob. And through Jacob, he is redeeming Leah. Through Jacob, Leah's deepest desire for love is being exposed. It's now out there like a sore wound. It's out there. And through Jacob, a very, very weak figure, a very, very weak example of, some, of God's people. And yet Leah now is being humbled. Leah's weaknesses are being drawn out. And you're going to see this, you know, as we go head into the fourth son, Leah's fourth son. Because the fourth son, every other son reflects weakness. I will be seen. I will be heard. I will be attached. And she's not seen. She's not heard. She's not attached. But the fourth son, what did she say? This time, I will praise the Lord. She names him Judah. God works through weak people to humble us, to strengthen us. God works in weak people. Look at Jacob, filled with pride, filled with anxiety, filled with wonder, filled with, uh, you know, anxiety because at the same time even though he feels like he can always claim blessing for himself I mean he's done it to the highest magnitude he's always wondering he's always insecure and yet what do you see God's working in him he can't run anymore he has to slow down now because before it was just himself now he's got a wife now he's got two wives pretty soon he'll have children he's slowing down he's getting caught he's getting tangled and yet at the same time he's being humbled he realizes that the best that he could be, at, at his best, he can't outrun the arm of God in his life. We, a lot of times in our struggles and our suffering, we don't see our suffering 
and our hurt and our pain. And a lot of times, you know, uh, the shackles that get placed on us because we're constantly on the run. And yet what happens is when we slow down, we don't see that as God's work in our lives, but it is. It's God forcing us to slow down. Sometimes it's through sickness. Sometimes it's through uh, broken relationships. God is using the broken relationships in our lives to actually heal us. Do you see that? Every one of us here is a victim and a culprit of a broken relationship. And yet God is using you and God is working in you to heal you through those relationships. How is he doing that for you? How is he healing you and and somehow pointing you to in some ways realize that I've been putting my heart into the wrong things and it's corroding my life, it's corroding my soul. The last thing that we see is that God works through the layers of the world to redeem his people. God doesn't use the strong, he uses the weak. He doesn't use the worldly secure people, he uses the worldly insecure people. He doesn't use the wealthy and the rich, he uses the poor. He doesn't use the healthy and the wise, he uses the sick. God uses, and and, and your greatest picture of that is Jesus himself. Jesus, who was everything good, everything whole, everything complete, actually becomes very, very weak. Look at Leah here. Leah, three sons, every one of them, a picture of her weakness, a picture of her sinfulness, a picture of her inner quality of drivenness and the things that are coming out and it's making her do all these other things, son after son after son. What she wants is to, it's not the son that she wanted, she wanted to be seen. It's not the son that she wanted, she wanted to be heard. She wanted to be attached. She wanted her husband's love so deeply. She's willing to do anything for this love. And yet something happened between that third and fourth son because the fourth son, she says, this time, I will praise the Lord. Nothing changed. It's not like Jacob all of a sudden turned his love towards uh, Leah out of repentance. That's not what the text says. In fact, Rachel, it gets worse. Later on, Rachel bears a son. So now they're equal in terms of bearing heirs. Jacob continually loves Rachel more, and actually Leah is not free from the family strife. Later on in chapters, you see uh, issues that emerge between Leah's household and Rachel's household. What happened between that third and fourth son that allows her to say, I will name this son Judah? Leah realized that her love and her desire for love was misappropriated. She realized that Judah, you know who Judah is? Judah later on becomes, in his lineage, he becomes the line of kings. Through Judah, King David was born. And through Judah, Jesus was born. The one who would ultimately come to redeem the world. And somehow, between the third and fourth son, Leah realized this. She realized that she was carrying the seed that would come to redeem and fulfill the whole of the world into its completion. She realized she was carrying the Redeemer. And and as a result, she says, this son, every other son is a picture of my weakness, but this son is a picture of my repentance. I will name him Judah. I will praise the Lord. Leah realized that all the love that she desired from her husband, it was inordinate. It was misappropriated. She didn't realize this until she realized, I'm carrying the seed of the Redeemer. God hears me. God sees me. All the while I was alone, God is attached to me. My Father sees me. I am seen. I am heard. I am attached. 
And, and it's a picture of the seed himself because when Jesus is born, Jesus is not born in strength. He's born in weakness. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. It's written in our call to worship. If you look at your call to worship, Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says what? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus, the greatest Rachel. In Mark chapter 1, heavens open up. Jesus is rising out of his baptism and the spirit of God hovers and descends upon him like a dove. And God himself opens up his voice and says, this is my son whom I love. He is beautiful. Look at him. He is beautiful. He is the greater Rachel. Holy pure, holy complete. And yet, he becomes Leah. So that the Leahs of the world will become Rachel in God's eyes. Jesus, the consummate Rachel, becomes the ultimate Leah. I mean, on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying there? Now, I am not seen. Now, I am not heard. My God and I were one. We are no longer attached. I am forsaken. For you. The moment you're able to see that God has attached to you, that God sees you, that God hears you, that he would send his own son to be disengaged from him for you, then you will know your worth. Then you will know how loved you are. If you're consistently trying to work to earn, you're just like Jacob. You're going to experience disappointment. If you're constantly trying to, all of our works, the the sum of our works, if you're constantly working and working and working, you're going to work for seven years. Seven is the number of completion. That's what you're going for. But look at Jacob. Seven years worked, it just renews again another seven years. You have to see that Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. I have done the work. You don't have to work to earn God's love anymore. You are loved. You are heard. You are seen. You are attached. And it will never, ever be disengaged from you because he has been disowned for you. That's love. That's worth. If you ever want to know, if you're ever wondering in your suffering, does God love me? Does God really love me? Don't just look to what happened between Jacob and Leah. Look to the cross. When you look at the cross, you see the ultimate Rachel becoming ugly and marred for you. That's love. Never doubt it. Let plant that truth deep inside. Let that work in you. See what that does to your insecurity. See what that does to your weakness. On one hand, you will be utterly confident. It will bring you joyful confidence. And yet, you will be humble because you did nothing to earn it. It was given to you. That's a beautiful person. That's true beauty. Somebody who can be utterly confident. I don't need your approval. I don't need your love. I'm grateful. It's a blessing, but I don't need it. It will not end me if I don't have it. And yet, because I'm utterly loved by the Father, and yet I can love you because God loved me, and I didn't deserve it. I can love you. That makes you incredibly beautiful. Friends, as we close today, 
will you place your faith and your hope in the love of God, his faithfulness to you? When we sing, can we sing thinking about the beauty that is Christ and yet him emptying himself even of his beauty so that you can have his beauty? Will you do that today? Will you do that this week? Let's pray.